Welcome to another BJ Psych Advances podcast. I'm Oliver Gale Grant, and I'm joined today at the Royal College of Psychiatrists by Todd Nathan, who is a forensic psychiatrist and researcher working in Cheshire. And we're here today to discuss his upcoming paper, co-authored with his colleague Peter Wilson, called The Clinical Assessment of Acts of Violence, Mental Mechanisms and Subjectivity. Taj, thanks very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thanks for this paper. So maybe we could start just by giving a really brief summary of what this paper is about. Sure. Um, so I suppose it was to address what we saw as a gap in the literature. Um, so it brings together the empirical evidence base. Um, so we are drawing on the uh, evidence relating to the processes underpinning violence, but it's to try to make it clinically relevant um, and uh, to make it clinically relevant, we're focusing on the patient's subjectivity and we're interested in subjectivity and by subjectivity I mean the patient's experience, it's as straightforward mm. as that. We're interested in subjectivity uh, because that's the primary medium by which we engage with a patient, we talk to a patient, they talk mm-hmm. to us. But we, as far as we knew, there hadn't been a paper like this which had distilled the evidence base as it is. So there's a huge evidence base about the etiology of violence. Um, uh, and that's largely neurobiological, but it's not all neurobiological. We want to distill it in a way uh, that uh, would make sense to a clinician. So a mm-hmm. clinician who mm-hmm. is, uh, who's meeting with a patient who's trying to understand with that patient previous acts of violence or future acts of violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose the other point is it's also to try and address what we've called in the paper the factor-based approach mm. uh, to risk assessment. And this isn't all about risk assessment. Mm. We do think this framework informs risk assessment. Um, and the factor-based approach is important. We identify factors that are associated with uh, uh, the likelihood of future violence. Mm. But that in itself doesn't give us answers to understand the individual's behaviour, their actions and their experiences behind the behaviour, or to understand in what circumstances in the future that they may uh, um, act in an aggressive mm. or violent way. Mm. So if I've understood this correctly, most of the sort of clinically used methods or formal uh, questionnaires for thinking about violence and yes. for documenting risk assessment, you'd consider factor-based. Is that right? I think, I think so. So more recently, so for example, uh, a commonly used risk assessment in forensic services is the HCR20. Mm. Uh, the most recent iteration, the third version of that, has introduced formulation, formulation, and I think that's seen as that, that's welcome amongst clinicians. Um, but um, so, so that's a new development. So I think a lot of the risk assessment approaches, whether that's risk of harm to others or risk of harm to self, and I should say, I should have said this at the outset, that we were very keen to emphasise the vast majority of people who suffer mental health problems don't present a risk. They don't present a mm. risk to others. They don't mm. present a risk to themselves. But those who do, we need to try and understand mm. that behaviour and that likelihood. So the factor-based approach has been the predominant approach for risk assessment. Formulation has been introduced, but I, even within, for example, something like the new version of HR20, there's not a, a, a way necessarily within that process of pulling together the factors to provide an explanation, to provide an understanding. And I, I think that's what we hope this paper would do um, uh, or assist in doing in relation to uh, future violence. Mm. And so... Maybe to help people understand exactly what we're meaning when we say factor-based. Yes. In the paper, you'll give some vignettes that are yes. sort of examples of violence. So yes. maybe I'll just read this first one out, which is an example of sexual violence. Yes. 
So it says A is a 25-year-old male who in the early hours of the morning was walking home from a night out with his friends when he saw an adult female ahead of him walking alone. He caught up with the woman and physically assaulted and attempts to rape her. He fled when he heard calls from a window overlooking the alley where the offence took place. He admitted to a history of voyeurism but did not have any previous convictions. So if, if we stop there, what, mm. what would uh, the sort of factors, yes. if we take a factor-based approach to trying to understand that situation? Uh, so we would start with looking, and there isn't enough detail to identify the common factors in that vignette yeah. uh, for, um, for, um, for reasons of space within the paper, but we might be interested in, is there a history of substance misuse? Yeah. So generally, the empirical literature uh, tells us that substance misuse is associated with the risk of sexual violence. Yes. Now, again, most people who have problems with substance misuse don't commit acts yes. of sexual violence and never will, but that's a risk factor. In fact, in this vignette that you referred to there, there's a history of voyeurism, so there's a history of sexual offending, so non-contact sexual offending. Uh, again, we know that most, or that uh, not all individuals who have a history of non-contact sexual offending will go on to commit contact sexual offending, mm. but there's an increased risk, as illustrated by uh, this vignette. So the factor-based approach would say, well, we know that there is, uh, if there is a history of substance misuse, we know that that's relevant, so we need to pay attention to that. If there is a history of previous sexual offending, then that's relevant because we know that's associated with, with a risk, um, so we need to pay attention to that. And there's, you know, there may be a whole list of factors that we identify, but the factor-based approach le- sort of leaves it at that um, mm. uh, and doesn't necessarily tell us. So it says, well... The, the group level empirical literature tells us that there is an association. So we might say we pull together those factors and we might say on the basis of looking at those factors and comparing this individual to a group of people who have been studied and followed up, we might say that there is, for example, and I'm plucking a figure out to the sky completely arbitrarily, but there might be a 30% risk of future offending. It doesn't tell us whether this individual is in the 30 out of 100 who go on an offend yeah. or the 70 out of 100 who don't. So there's actually a higher, there's a higher risk that he doesn't offend, even though he's a higher risk yes. offender. So the factor-based approach tells us where someone sits in a group, but in itself doesn't help us with the individual. And yes. again, what we're concerned about is something that is unique about the individual. Um, and partly that's their subjectivity. We need to take account of those factors because it may be Coming back to the point about substance misuse, we know there's an association between substance misuse and sexual offending. We also know between substance misuse and violent offending. Um, But it may be in this case that it's not relevant. So although the group level data says there is an association, we may find in this particular case, um, we have looked back at previous incidents. um, We see that actually, in this case, substance misuse isn't a a particularly important factor that we need to pay attention Mm. to. So in, in this approach uh, that we're advocating in the paper what we're saying is pay attention to the factors but you've got to bring them together in some way yeah and formulation is a way and that's um, you know that's not a, a new thing that we're presenting here formulation is is accepted uh, as a way of bringing together information to provide understanding but the key thing i think that we're presenting here over and above a lot of the other literature is we're talking about the mental mechanisms so what how what what accounts for the relationship between a factor so if in this case uh, there is a history of sexually deviant fantasies, which are previously manifest in the voyeurism and are currently manifest or more recently manifest in the index offence, what we want to try and understand is well, what are the mental mechanisms that account for that, uh, for those deviant sexual interests, and how do those deviant sexual interests, how may they be manifest in offending behaviour? 
which the factor-based approach doesn't take us to. Yeah. So if you were thinking about that same vignette, and I know there's not much detail, but if you were thinking yeah. about a vignette similar to that one in a formulation-based approach, yes. then you might think about things like the, the individual person's history and specific things that are relating from what the individual's done before to now. Yeah, so, so what I should say, again, this paper we have, in this paper we've focused on what we call proximal processes. Yeah. But what you've referred to there is distal processes, okay. which are important. So we're not saying they're not important, but they're to include the distal processes. So the historical reasons for the development of these mechanisms yeah. uh, is a separate paper. Okay. Um, so, uh, but for example, what we know in terms of the factor literature, that perpetration of sexual offending is a, a risk factor uh, for future sexual offending. Uh, uh, past perpetration, sorry, is a risk factor for future sexual offending but also past victimization. Sexual mm. victimization is a risk factor for future mm. perpetration. So we may be interested, and I would be interested in clinical practice, in what the process is that accounts for that association. We're not talking about the connection between distal okay. um, factors. So what we would be interested here, we would the, the formulation-based approach involving subjectivity and mental mechanisms, would be we would be interested, and it's referred to in the vignette, in this case, the individual may anticipate achieved sexual arousal through witnessing the, the suffering of the victim. Mm. So that is a particular process. Now, that doesn't apply in all uh, cases of sexual offending, but that's a very important process. Mm. And there may be a distal cause for that. I mean, mm. We would be interested in that. This paper is saying, let's be interested as clinicians in our discussions with the patients on those processes, mm. because that connects... Um, uh, their experience and their view of the world and the way they experience the, the um, other people in the world particularly and their offending mm. behaviour. So in the paper, you break down the formulation-based framework yes. into individual steps or individual factors, yes. maybe I should say. Maybe not the word factors. Yes. So there's sort of cause, reasons, yes. intention, motivation, function, rationalisation and then justification. Yes. So maybe we could just talk through those yes. uh, and how you might think about those practically and clinically. So, so the, the, the idea of that part of the paper um, was that those are terms that are used. So if we, I mean, I think in the paper we've referred to explanatory narratives and that sort of technical way of saying someone might give an explanation and they give an account of uh, what's happened. And that may be the clinician giving their account uh, of what the individual has done or it may be the individual themselves giving an account. In, if we listen to those accounts, people will say, well, the reason I did that was this. The cause of it was that the uh, clinician, the patient may be less likely to refer to function. Mm. Um, but, you know, we refer to function and motivation. And the reason for this bit of the paper was sometimes we're a bit sloppy in the way that we use those terms. And if we pay more attention to the meaning of those terms, then it's, uh, as clinicians, then we get more interested in the actual real subjectivity mm. so for example this difference between cause and reason so the cause is something that brings about the action so it's something that drives the action i'm, I'm hesitating using the word drive because there's a psychological meaning to that but i'm talking just in physical terms drives the action the reason is why the action was brought about so but sometimes cause and reason are used together mm. um, and all we're saying is that if clinicians take care and think about these terms, then they become more interested in the detail of the subjectivity. So mm -hmm. rather than saying, well, we just need to find the motivation or we just need to find the intention, 
Um, if we understand the difference from a subjective perspective between cause, reason, intention, motivation, function, then we start to, uh, it, it motivates us to get into the detail of the subjectivity. Yeah. So we may say, well, we've, we think we've found the reason. And so some, we think we found the reason for this behavior, this violent behavior. And then uh, we may think, oh, so that's what we need to do. We, we've sorted it out. But then you might say, well, is that, does that cover the motivation and does that cover the cause? Um, and how do we take account of the rationalization if there is rationalization? So I suppose that part of the paper was an introduction to say, let's pay attention to these words that we commonly use, that we take for granted, that actually have very specific meaning. Yes. So then you go on in the paper to talk about explanatory models of aggression. Yes. And the explanatory model of aggression that you've discussed here is, is mm. broken down to these different subsections, yes. maybe. Uh, something I wasn't quite clear on is, is, is this your own sort of breakdown into the trigger, attention, meaning, preparedness, evaluation, inhibition or activation and then yes. action? Yes. Is, is um, that new or is this well, something else? I, no, no. So I don't think we can take credit for that. So that's, so that's it probably isn't described in the same way uh, elsewhere, yeah. uh, but it's not new. So what we've done is we've looked at particularly the literature examining the psychological correlates of behaviour. So not within a clinical population, largely this literature is, for all of us, what is happening both neurobiologically and psychologically when we prepare for an action and we, can, and we act. Um, so we've borrowed those, the frameworks from those models, which are underpinned by significant empirical support. Um, but what we have done is I think we've borrowed different terms from different models because they make more sense to the clinician. Mm. Um, so the overall framework, that sort of disaggregation of our internal experience and our subjectivity for when we act, the overall framework is supported by uh, the evidence and is borrowed from models that exist. Mm. We, we've set that out in a way that we would argue makes sense to clinicians undertaking mm. these sorts of mm. assessments. Mm. And so clinically, if, if this kind of framework was to be used. Yes. I suppose one, one thing about it that uh, I, I struggle to understand maybe is that as far as I can see, you would need a violent act to have occurred to start to think about it. Is that the case? Yeah, or? I think, well, I, I think it, I, mostly it is. I mean, and, and I think that's the primary purpose of this framework. The primary purpose is to um, guide the uh, clinician and, as I say, the individual, the patient, um, uh, uh, in attempts to explore their, their sort of mind state associated with that action. Mm. Um, that action. So as you say, has there been an action? Um, it can be used um, to, if, for example, uh, a clinician uh, is asked to undertake an assessment for someone who, is, who has ruminations about aggression, but hasn't actually been aggressive. So it can be used to explore, well, what, so if we break the sequence, the sequence of subjectivity into these steps, so uh, the trigger, the attention, the meaning, um, uh, preparedness, activation, and action. Um, so we'd say, well, the rumination um, may indicate uh, some preparedness. If there's rumination about acting aggressively, um, then the individual may be more likely to act aggressively. Then we might be interested to say, well, what would the triggers be? Um, and what, what are the in inhibitions? So what are the things that are inhibiting that preparedness from actually manif being manifest in action, um, or what are the situations or the circumstances in which that preparedness would be activated. Mm. Uh, so I, I would agree with you that I think it is primarily where there is an action, but I think the framework could be used 
if there are some concerns that mm. there may be an action. But I don't think it's useful if, if there's no concern about the potential for violence, yes. then, uh, then, then there is so a I suppose as you said it's not really strictly uh, something to be used for stratifying patients into different risk categories. It's not, absolutely not. But more uh, as a way of either helping the clinicians or the patients think about what the triggers behind their violence yes. might be. Yes. And I suppose with the purpose of that would be that that might inform some future therapeutic work or some yes, or so might help people to try and help the patient avoid that situation. Well, so, so firstly, I think that um, my experience, my clinical experience is that where we uh, show a genuine interest in the patient's subjectivity, that um, helps establish the therapeutic relationship. So just that genuine interest. Um, so rather than coming along and, and saying, well, okay, well, we, we have our own model um, and we're just going to apply it to, so we, for this type of aggression, we have a model and we're going to apply that explanatory model to this type of aggression. What we're going to say is, well, look, we, we understand the mind in this way. Um, mm. And we're going, we're interested in you filling out the detail in, mm. in that sort of, uh, you know, in that assessment process. Um, so that the first, uh, hopefully, uh, the first objective is that it demonstrates that we are truly interested mm. uh, in mm. the patient's experience. And I think that, you know, that we should demonstrate that, not just in assessing violence, we should demonstrate mm. that across clinical practice. But then to come to your point uh, about guiding management, guiding intervention, yes. So, so um, the example I gave before, if it, if it turns out that uh, through entering into discussions about the subjectivity of previous violence, that it turns out that alcohol, uh, although there is alcohol abuse, it's not actually relevant in this case. We might, mm. we might think, we might offer the patient opportunities to address that, but we don't think that's a key target or a key need that we, that should be addressed to reduce the risk of violence yes um if the in the sexual offending case if the particular type of sexual deviance is that the individual feels heightened sexual arousal when witnessing the suffering or anticipating the suffering of the victim well that's clearly an area that needs to be addressed yes but we shouldn't make assumptions about that we should try and find the evidence mm. and i suppose we would argue that find the evidence for that subjective experience on the basis of this sort mm. of framework mm. Mm. So in the conclusion of the paper, you talk about uh, thinking about links between correlates of a behavior and the yes. behavior itself in a mind-based or brain-based frame yes. of reference. Yes. So would this would, would the bulk of this paper be what you're referring to as a mind-based frame of reference? It is. And, and just to explain that distinction, so, yes. I, so I've come to that distinction, or it's become clearer, that distinction to me, as I've had more experience as a clinician. Yes. Um, so I think as a trainee and as a junior consultant, my frame of reference uh, was that, uh, yes, I, I access, but my access to the patient's world is through what they say. So I accept that I'm accessing their subjectivity, um, but I'm doing that as a way to get to something inherent and something true uh, that ultimately is biological. Mm. What I've come to realize, um, and this moves into philosophy, but I think it is relevant, I've come to realize that that model isn't accurate. There are two frames of reference. And if I could use an analogy, um, so if we watch a film, uh, we don't look for the meaning of the film in the mechanics of the projector, or we don't uh, get to the meaning of the film by understanding the physics of the way the projector produces an image on a, on a screen. Mm. Uh, we, the meaning exists in its own right, mm. uh, separate from the... It's not... Well, it, the meaning exists separate from the projector. The projector yes. is necessary, so if the projector fails, then there is, there's no film. Yes. Um, in the same way, the mind requires the brain to be functioning to exist, but it has meaning of it in its own right. Yes. Um, 
And this is where I think in psychiatry we differ from our physical health colleagues. So I, I think coming from medicine, my original assumption was, well, we, we will eventually get there. We will eventually find something physical that underpins. Depression. Uh, yes, uh, distress yes. Um, diagnoses. Uh, we'll find something physical. And we may find correlates. So we may say, uh, this is the subjective experience of depression. We find a biological correlate. The biological correlate can never give meaning to the depression. The model that I take is that these are two representations. The mental can't be reduced into the physical. So, as I say, it, it may seem slightly esoteric and philosophical, but it's made me realise that we need to be more interested in the subjective because that's the mental. That's truly something that has its own frame of reference and its own meaning that exists independent. Well, it, it has its own meaning, which is independent of the biology. It's dependent on the biology for that frame of reference to exist. But it, it's, uh, as with the analogy of the film, the meaning of the mm. film, our interest in the film exists separate to the, uh, mm. any understanding. We don't understand the projector to understand the meaning of the film. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and I suppose the extension of this then is, uh, and this is an area that I've got interested in, both in relation to violence, but also in psychosis. And, and I should say that uh, Pete, Wilson, who's a trainee working with me on this, hopes to explore this more in psychosis. So his intention is to study this idea of the subjectivity. Um, or, uh, uh, can we reach uh, an explanation based on subjectivity? So can we find mechanisms? A mechanism sounds very hard and deterministic and biological, but I'm talking about psychological mechanisms. Yeah. So um, causal mechanisms within the psychology, within that, um, you know, within the mental experience, the subjective mm. experience. Mm. Um, so I suppose... That's why we said, well, it depends on which frame of reference you take. But either way, I think after that point, we said either way, our access to the patient's experiences through their subject, the only way, through their subjectivity, we yes. have no other access. So an example, so it's not to disregard the biology, the neurobiology. Uh, an example that I think of is if, for example, we say, well, impulsivity is a risk factor for aggression. Mm -hmm. um, and we know that and there may be a relationship between a disturbance in the serotonergic system and impulsivity, um, and we find a drug that deals with that imbalance um, uh, in a way that reduces impulsivity, we still have to identify the impulsivity. And impulsivity is, is uh, part of its definition relies on subjectivity. So you can't truly understand whether something's impulsive by just looking at behavior. You can, you can try and make an assumption, was that impulsive? but you may get it wrong. And, you, and as a clinician looking at behavior, we may say something's impulsive when there was preparation yeah. uh, and there was planning. So um, I suppose what I'm arguing is that it's all about subjectivity. Neurobiology is important, but it has to... It, we, we can um, study subjectivity alone, or we can, if we're studying neurobiology, we also need to study subjectivity. Mm. Mm. So I, I suppose that's an interesting way of thinking about... Uh, thinking about I suppose, things more broadly than just yes. uh, violence and aggression, Absolutely. I suppose, the whole of psychiatry I, in a I, way. I, and that's the position I've come to. Yes. That I think that, um, whereas, as I say, early in my training and as a junior consultant, I saw my sort of role was to identify something that equated to something biological. Yeah. Um, uh, and as I say, it's not that I've come to downplay the role of the biology, but it's yes. that that's not what it's all about. And yes. this is where we differ, as I said before, from our physical health colleagues, um, that, and it's even in physical medicine, it's not all about 
you know, something biological, but it's predominantly you yeah. can identify. Uh, so, you, so you scan a, um, a leg uh, that you suspect is broken, and you confirm whether it's broken. And if it is, then that accounts for the pain. Yeah. I don't think um, it's not to say uh, that we may not be helped by s- scanning the brain, but that alone won't explain yes. it because you, yes. you, you you strip away the subjectivity, yes. which then strips away the meaning uh, for the patient. Yes. So I suppose to use the projector analogy, you know, if you had a different sort of projector projecting more colours or fewer colours, then it may change the meaning of the film somewhat. Yes. But you still would need to take a broader meaning of the film. Yes. Whatever's coming out of the projector. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yes. Well, thank you. That's a really great discussion. And I think, uh, I, I hope will help everyone to get the best out of this paper. Thank you for listening to this BJ Psych Advances podcast. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at the BJ Psych. To listen to more podcasts from the BJ Psych Journal portfolio, visit us on SoundCloud or search for us online.